Pastor John is uh, celebrating with his father today, who is graduating with an advanced degree back at Enders. And so, I we congratulate their family as they meet together. In our Sabbath school class, we talked about community outreach. And as a matter of fact, the whole quarter we're spending on community outreach. And a number of interesting questions come up, came up in class. But the bottom line is, what would God have us to do at this time, at this place, and this time in history? And someone suggested, well, what we need to do is ask Jesus for our mission, our personal mission. In other words, what is it that you would have me to do? And we've been talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us power uh, to witness, and that power brings something that is effective. It actually accomplishes a purpose. Now, many of us have been frustrated, feeling that we've been praying for people. Uh, we know that maybe they're ensnared by some worldly philosophy, or they're addicted, or have some form of uh, worldly attraction that keeps them away from a full commitment to Christ, and we've been praying for those people. What I'm going to talk about today will just be like dry powder in the cannon of prayer. In other words, effective, powerful, meaningful prayer that actually accomplishes results. Because the, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And of course, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. But after the Lord's Prayer, he gave them this parable. Now, there's a little bit of a background of the parable. I'm going to tell some stories, and you probably won't see a whole lot of meaning in these stories until we put it together in the parable. When we left Beirut, we wanted to spend some time in Israel and visit Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. And I'd read in books that there's a stairway by the old gate, and if you go up this stairway, you can find your way to a path that actually goes along the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. But what I didn't realize, and what I didn't take into consideration, was after the time that book had been written, something had happened in the Middle East called the Six-Day War. And the Six-Day War had divided the old city between the Arab side and the, the Jewish side. Prior to that time, it had been occupied by the Arabs only. In other words, the Jews did not have access to the Wailing Wall until the Six-Day War. But there was hand-to-hand -hand fighting that took place at the Dome of the Rock. And you remember that the Dome of the Rock was sacred both to the Jews and to the Arabs because to the Jews it was the place where Isaac was offered. But to the Arabs, it's the place where they think that Ishmael was offered. And so that Dome of the Rock is, is a very holy sh a shrine and a sacred place and a point of much contention. So my son David was 12 years old, very adventuresome, and he was up for the adventure of finding this wall, and we found the gate, sure enough, climbed up the stairway, dusty old pathway, and made our way, and sure enough, there we'd see, we could see the path about this wide along the top of the wall. And sometimes it was broken down in spots, but we were just fascinated by this because just like the book said, we could look down and there were the backyards of people's dwellings 
and the grandmas were sitting on blankets with their little children and a mother was hanging up some clothes and there was a carcass of an animal there hanging much as it was back in the times of David, back in the time of Jesus. It was so fascinating that we hardly noticed the passing of time. It was kind of late in the afternoon and it was getting a little more and more dark. And we came to a place where there was some barbed wire across this little path. Uh, some stones there and some kind of uh, cross member of wood like this. And I thought, well, maybe we better turn, turn around. But David, being adventuresome as he is, and a rock climber from the get-go, was already finding his way to climb around the side. And so I followed, and uh, we were back on the path again. Now, I want to get back to this story a little bit later. Another story, when we first moved to Lebanon, and uh, I think I've told some of that before, how we, we shipped a car to Antwerp, Belgium, and we drove it all the way down through uh, the countries of Europe, uh, Germany, Yugoslavia, Greece, Turkey, Syria, and got into Beirut at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's, that's another story. Um, I believe there were angels that guided us out of that predicament. Um, but after we, I, it was probably the next day or two when we uh, were able to wake up and walk around a little bit, we realized that we needed to buy some food. And so bread is a staple of the Middle East. And those bakers would bake this big, these big round loaves of flat bread on a designated day. And we knew that there were bakers in the area, but we didn't know where they were. So we got in our car, and we started driving along to look for a bakery. And we saw some Lebanese men standing beside the road, young men, stopped, rolled down the window, and we asked them a favor. Now, what I didn't understand, and uh, we learned over a period of time, is that it's an honor to be asked a favor in the Middle East. It's an honor for several reasons. For one reason, it exalts the person who's asked as the benevolent person. Uh, the society of the Middle East is based upon being kind to one another, hospitality, uh, a moral influence which is actually benevolent and friendly. And it's kind of hard for us to understand that, but a person in that community will try to do the right thing, will try to do the helpful thing. So, as a matter of fact, there's a greeting in Arabic that says, Min wain el krim, which means, from where is your presence, O generous one? So to be known as a generous one is really a wonderful thing. But the second reason that people like to be asked is because it means that uh, they are guaranteed it's like money in the bank and that they can ask you for something and you return the favor. So we stopped the car and we asked these young people, uh, do you know where there's a bakery in this area? Oh, sure, we will help you find it. So they got in the car, and they pointed this direction, this direction, and finally back around down over here uh, to the bakery. We went in, got our air bread, and went back home and enjoyed it. Uh, bread is a basic staple in the Middle East because they, they tear it, they use it kind of like a spoon, they fold it and maybe dip it in lebna, which is uh, the yogurt, or maybe in the stew. You know, the sop that Jesus took and offered to, his, uh, to Judas was probably bread that was wrapped around some morsel of food. Uh, 
A few days later, there was a knock on our door, and I noticed this young Lebanese man. And uh, so I said, yes, can I help you? And he said, would you give me the seatbelt off of your car? See, a favor reciprocal. And I was really shocked and taken back, and I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't realize, you know, we had shipped that car from America, and we had driven it into Lebanon, but not but cars in other parts of the world don't necessarily have the safety features that are required in the United States, and so the cars were there, but they didn't have seatbelts. So uh, I said, well, I, I need those seatbelts to keep my, my children safe. Well, as a good bargainer in the Middle East and bargain, he says, well, then give me yours. <laughs> and, you know, the shock, the culture shock of coming into a culture where um, it's an honor to be asked and the shame is saying no. Why? Because shame is blame and people in the Middle East are hospitable. They're giving, they're generous. Why don't you give me your seatbelt? Well, I didn't handle that very well. Um, I said, well, why do you need a seatbelt? He says, because I drive very fast. <laughs> and I said, well, I would suggest that you slow down. <laughs> and he said, I cannot. And after being there for a while, I could, I could understand that uh, it was difficult to slow down. But what I'm saying here is <laughs> that you can come boldly and ask a person in the Middle East because that person wants to give. I will plug this into our parable. You have been praying for people within your sphere of influence. That sphere of influence would be your family, your friends, your loved ones, your acquaintance, people within your fraternities, um, professional people that you meet. And you've been asking the Lord to speak a word in season to the one that's weary. And you've been asking for that word to speak to the one that's weary. The disciples saw Jesus in prayer, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And in verse 4, or verse 5, Jesus said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and shall say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is on a journey, is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Now, as we're praying for others, the enemy will try to tempt us to think that if we don't see answers, it's because we haven't prayed hard enough. We haven't agonized. We haven't knocked loud enough. We haven't stood long enough begging. And that there's something within ourselves that we must do in order for God to answer our prayer. But Jesus was actually speaking against that kind of thinking. Now, he didn't say that the Father is like a man who is sleeping and he doesn't want to be awakened. You see, the enemy makes us think that, that, that that's the way God is. The enemy turns that parable around. But what Jesus is actually saying, he says, have you ever seen anything like this? Which of you has ever 
seen it, has made it happen where you have a friend at midnight and you go and you ask him for a favor and he says, don't bother me. What he's really saying is that that is so out of character, so impossible, that it's not going to happen. Now, I know it takes us a while to understand, but in the Middle East, everything happens in a society. Everyone is in on that society. And why did this person in the story come at midnight? Well, they travel at night. It's so hot in the day. And we've had, what, temperatures uh, 96. Uh, Marvin said it was, what, 103. And when you get out in that heat, it's not very comfortable. And even if you wear the uh, kifaya, uh, it still is very difficult to travel in, 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 the, in the day. And there are some places in the arid countries where the temperature can go up to 130, even in, in Egypt, even to 140 degrees. So they will pitch a tent, one of these big, thick camel hair tents, and they will sleep during the day and then travel at night. So they would likely arrive at midnight. Now, it's also the custom that when a person comes in from a journey, they, they throw a feast. Why not? Because they're hungry, they're weary, and, and they're thirsty. But in, what they did in those days is that they, when they threw a feast, they didn't just go to a pantry. They would go around to their neighbors because the whole community was in on it. And the neighbors wouldn't mind. They would be eager to help to contribute something, some bread here, maybe, you know, some olives, uh, some fruit, pomegranates, figs, until they had a banquet for those people. So what Jesus is saying is that since that's the custom, why would you think that the person inside would say, don't go away, or don't bother me, but go away? Now, there's some very interesting words in the Bible that help us to pin this down. If you have an insert there in your bulletin, There's an interesting word translated in the King James Bible as importunity. It says, even if he's not his friend, he will arise and give him whatever he asks because of his importunity. Now, it's interesting that sometimes we think that we have, you know, it might be a crisis time, a time when there's a desperate need, and you bow to pray, and the enemy tells you, you don't have a good enough relationship with God. They were on a friendly term, so he was a friend, but it says, even if he's not a friend, in other words, exclude that possibility. If you don't feel that you have a friendship with God, because of his importunity, he will arise and give him everything that he asks. Now, what does importunity mean? This is a Greek word which is based on the word for shame. Shame. You see, in a culture where it's an honor to be benevolent, it's a shame to be stingy. And people are disciplined by shame. And it takes us a while to understand that. I, if you, when I was doing graduate work at Andrews University, I was doing, taking a class from Roy Naden on product development. And uh, being a graduate class, there, there were not very many people in the class, and so he would go around the class and he would say, well, what product are you going to develop? People would say, well, I'm going to develop a product that, of working for youth. And then he would say, 
Uh, how are you going to go about that? And one question he asks is, how are you going to motivate the people? How are you going to motivate people? Well, you're going to find out what their needs are. See, that's an American way of thinking. And you're going to find out how to meet those needs. You're going to find out what they're interested in. We came to a person from an Oriental, Oriental culture. And he said, what's your product? And he said, my product is going to be uh, a youth ministry. And he said, the youth are going to become involved in this ministry in, in my country. So Roy Nathan says, well, how are you going to motivate them? And he said, I will shame them. Now, when he said that, I just couldn't contain my laughter. And of course, it's also, you know, you also want to save faith and face in Oriental countries, and this was a bad thing to do, but I could just imagine, you know, making an announcement. Okay, we're going to have a program for the young people this afternoon. All the young people show up, and we're going to go out and help people in the neighborhood. And no one shows up, so the next day you see that youth on the sidewalk, and you say, shame on you, shame on you. I mean, they would laugh you to scorn. Because it doesn't work in this society. Because in this society, we're individuals. And we accept responsibility individuals, not corporately. But in the Middle East, and in some Oriental societies, since it's an honorable thing to be benevolent, it's a shameful thing not to be benevolent. Now back to the story that underscores this a little bit. As it got dark as we were walking along, on this path along the old city of Jerusalem, I began to realize that maybe things were not as they should be because that path was all tumbled down, the stones were broken and falling off, and uh, we had to work our way around, kind of like rock climbing, where you have two points of contact at all time. We finally made our way around there, and I thought, surely we're going to come to the stairwell where it goes down. And I looked around, and it was kind of semi-dark, and I thought maybe this is the place because it was kind of flat, like I mean, it was the roof of a building. And there was a stairwell, and David started down the stairwell, and about that time I saw a strong flashlight. And you know how sometimes it begins to dawn on you, you know, maybe we shouldn't be here. And as this flashlight was playing along various parts on the wall, I thought I'd better be positive about this. And so I shouted out. I said, boy, am I glad to see you. We're lost. But he came over, and he was a policeman. And he says, where, where are other men? And I said, uh, oh, he's, he was down there. So David came up out of the stairwell. And he said, what do you do here? How do you get here? You on top of police station. <clears throat> I realized that when I crossed that when I crossed that barrier from one side to the other and that little that little wire barrier, I had passed from the Arabs or passed from the Israeli side to the Arab side. Two fighting factions who had agreed to allow people to come into the old city as tourists. And we were now standing on top of the police station. And when he said, How you get here, what you do here. I said, well, we came, we came along the wall. No, it's impossible. He says, you show me. So we went back where these rocks were all tumbled down and the wall was deteriorating and we showed him how we did their, you know, two points of contact and walked around. And he began to call me names that were not very nice. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you what those names were because there's no reason for boys and girls to come to church to learn names like that. But those, <laughs> but you understand the meaning of some of those names. They, they had a meaning of a person that had very low intelligence, a person who had very little wisdom, a person that might be suitable for a mental institution. <laughs> and he was shouting those names very loud. And yeah, I felt a bit ashamed. And as we walked along, uh, we came to the place where there was uh, the fence. And he said, what you do here? So we showed him how we had walked around that part, climbed around that part. And he began to shout these names louder. And, you know, after a while, you begin to feel that. I mean, this is something about being shamed that has an impact. And so I, I said, well, you know, in the United States, we'd have a sign on something like that. And he said, this is not the United States. And finally, we came to the place where we went down the stairwell. And I thought, whew, you know, we made a mistake. We're tourists. We should have known. He gave us a good balling out. Uh, maybe that's the end of the matter. At least that was a kind of a private thing between me and the policeman. But when we got down on the sidewalk, those narrow streets in the old city of Jerusalem, he lifted up his voice all the louder, shouting those names, you so-and-so, you this, you that. And uh, rather than having privacy, the people would turn around and look, their eyes big and their mouths open, you know, like the psalmist says, like the cattle of Bashan that gaped upon me with their mouths, because it's a community thing. And I begin to think maybe we were in serious trouble. We walked along and he kept shouting and people were looking and kind of gathering about and finally we came to the other gate, the police station that we had been standing on top of and I thought, is he going to lock us up? Is he going to shoot us? Is this going to be an international incident? What's going to happen? And he turned to us quietly and he said, now next time go out this gate. We had our punishment. Our punishment was shame. It's an honor to be asked, a shame to say no. Let's go back to the parable now. Have you ever heard of such a thing that when your friend comes and he's hungry and he has a need and you go to your friend and you ask him at midnight, Arise and give me some bread. Now, why did he want this bread? Bread was a staple. The basic of every meal had to be there for that banquet. It was unheard of to refuse a request for bread because it was an honorable thing to give this bread. He says, have you ever heard of such a thing that the man inside would say, don't bother me, go away? And then he uses this word. He says, even if he's not his friend, because of his and it uses the Greek word opposite of shame. To avoid shame, he will arise and give him all that he asks. In other words, God is blameless. God is shameless. God is honorable. God is benevolent. Don't think of him as one that you have to try to get his attention and work hard, work yourself up into something so he will listen. He's eager 
to answer your request. And look at that, that insert. As you drop down, you see that some translations have talked about the person who makes the request as being brash. Uh, and yes, it's true. It's true that it's appropriate to go on asking, but what God is saying is the reason that's appropriate is not to give up because you don't have an answer, but to realize that God is eager to answer your prayer. And as you drop down to Mount Greek Interlinear, it translates that I say to you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of the prospect of being put to shame, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And from Christ's object lessons, but the selfish neighbor in the parable does not represent the character of God. The lesson is drawn not by comparison, but by contrast. In other words, God is not like that. It says that he longs to grant the requests of those who come to him in faith. He gives to us that we may minister to others and thus become like himself. So as you pray for those within your sphere of influence, within your oikos, and the enemy is there to say, well, you know, why pray? He's not going to make a difference. Nothing's going to happen. Remember that God has said, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and ye shall receive. And you notice how that concludes at Luke 11. And that's where Jesus said in verse 13, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you that word to speak in season for the one who is weary. Ask lightheartedly. Ask boldly, knowing that God will answer your requests without blame. It's a shame to say no. Let's pray. Our Lord, what a joy it is to receive treasure from your word, the assurance of your loving kindness, your tender mercies. Too good to be condemned. We praise you. We want to take advantage of your offer to pray for those in need. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.